This podcast is brought to you by flexible working company Fora. Traditional offices may no longer be what workers want, but flexible workspaces like Fora can give the versatility that today's companies need. Not only can they be more economical, flexible workspaces can also have the amenities that employees really need. To learn more about how old ways are being ditched for new workplaces, visit wired.uk forward slash Fora. Coming up today, Sweden's pandemic gamble, the deepfake bot being weaponized against women, and Natasha tries to put the interesting in negative interest rates. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Vicky Turk, and joining me today are Natasha Bernal. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft touched down briefly on the surface of an asteroid called Bennu. During the six-second touchdown, the spacecraft collected a sample from the asteroid, which is over 300 million kilometres from Earth. It was a big week for space because Nokia also announced it would be building the first ever cellular network on the moon. The ultra-compact 4G system will self-configure upon landing and it should be in place by late 2022. It will be one small step towards a permanent human presence on the moon. This was also the week that the FBI announced Russia and Iran have US voter information. It said Iran was responsible for sending threatening emails to Democratic voters as it tried to incite unrest in the country. And finally, Quibi, the short video app that billed itself as Hollywood's answer to TikTok and YouTube, is shutting down this week just seven months after launching to the public. The startup had raised $1.75 billion with backing from the likes of Alibaba, Disney and Sony. RIP Quibi, we barely knew ye. Interesting facts. Who has an interesting fact for us this week? Matt Reynolds, coming in strong with the animal facts. I am. So I learned this week that flamingos are unusual in the world of birds because they produce milk, but that milk is bright red. So it's produced by both male and female flamingos. It's made in their upper digestive tract and it contains fats, proteins and red blood cells, which is what gives it its blood-like colour. So there's actually kind of some quite freaky videos out there of uh you know, parent flamingos feeding their, their children with this you know, blood-like liquid. And pigeons also produce this, what is called crop milk too, but it's quite unusual among birds. Sounds highly unusual. Sounds quite terrifying. It's, it's very halloween I have to say. Matt Burgess, you've got a friendlier animal fact for us. I do. So this week I learnt that cows have friends. Um, so studies of cows have concluded that um, cows cows when they're in their herds are affectionate towards other specific individuals uh, within that herd so they express this friendship uh, by grazing together uh, and licking each other which is type of grooming essentially uh, and a study in the UK found that half the cows in one herd spent more than half of their time uh, eating and resting alongside other individual cows uh, within that herd um, so basically when they were near their friends their heart rates were lower and they they didn't behave erratically by stomping or charging or anything like that. So, um, it, yeah, cows have friends. Who knew? Cows, they're just like us. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I don't lick my friends, but yeah, in that sense. Matt Reynolds mentioned Halloween and Natasha, you've got a timely fact for us this week. Yes, I do. It's about pumpkins. So a man from the Halloween capital of the world has officially grown the heaviest pumpkin in North America this year because they measure things like that. So the 1,066 kilo pumpkin nicknamed Tiger King after the Netflix series will be turned into a jack-o'-lantern in the shape of a tiger after all this is all over. So Travis Geinger, who is a horticulture teacher, transported it on the back of a truck for 35 miles from Anoka, Minnesota, which is the Halloween 
capital of the world. I didn't know that either. To a pumpkin weighing contest under some wet blankets to stop it from bursting. So for the pumpkin fans out there, the heaviest pumpkin in the world record was set by a 1,190 kilo pumpkin from Belgium in 2016, according to Guinness World Records. So he's not far off, as it turns out. That's one pretty big pumpkin, a thousand kilograms. I'm trying to picture that in my mind and I'm I'm getting a, an image of a, a very, very large pumpkin indeed. Yeah, you can live in it. It's It was huge. It was genuinely ginormous, it, obscenely big, um, really big. Wonder what Google his grapes it. are. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Spooky though. That there should be indeed. a vegetable that big. It's a vegetable, isn't it? Is a, is a pumpkin a vegetable? Maybe that'll be my next fact. No one I think technically it might be a fruit. We'll find out. Find okay. out for the next show. I learned an interesting fact this week. I learned about a human sense that I hadn't heard of before. It's called interoception. And interoception is the ability to feel internal bodily sen- sensations. So things like your heart beating or your gut churning, uh, as opposed to exteroceptive senses, which are things that you can um, sense from the outside world. So, you know, your sense of smell and, and touch and that sort of thing. And it's thought that our interoceptive abilities may play a role in things like anxiety and depression and our ability to process our emotions. Fascinating stuff. We've actually got a feature all about this on Wired at the moment uh, and the researchers exploring this sense. We've got a super special subscription offer for podcast listeners. You can get the current issue of Wired magazine for the ludicrously low introductory price of £1. You then get the next six issues for the low, low price of £19. That's more than a year of brilliant Wired journalism for 20 quid. This is a limited time offer and is only available to people in the UK. If you love the podcast and want to support what we do, then why not give the magazine a try? You won't regret it. Head to wired.uk forward slash pod sub one. That's wired.uk forward slash P-O-D-S-U-B number one. On to our first story of this week. Matt Reynolds, you've been obviously staying on top of the coronavirus story since it first broke towards the beginning of this year. And at the start of uh, the pandemic reaching Europe, there was one country that took a rather different route to most of the other places around it. Sweden decided to take a bit of a different approach to lockdown. That's right. So back in March, countries all around the world started to follow the lead of China Um, in locking down in order to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And obviously we've seen this in a bunch of countries, but this was particularly the case in Europe. So we saw in Italy and then Spain and and France and then then the UK in uh, in mid-March. But there was one notable exception, like you say, Vicky, and that was Sweden. So while the rest of Europe was taking this approach of restricting movement, um, household quarantine, and basically, you know, uh, stopping people from mixing outside their homes, Sweden's approach, which was led by a state epidemiologist, a guy called Anders Tegnell, was to balance the risk of the virus with the consequences of closing schools and businesses. Now, I'm sure our listeners will be very, very aware of this because the so-called Swedish experiment has been debated uh, to no end in the media and on on podcasts and all over the place. Um, It's an approach that's earned the country admiration and criticism in equal degree. So there are people who say that this uh, approach is proof that lockdowns aren't necessary, while on the other side, other people are saying well, actually, this just proves that there, that there was these entirely preventable failures to protect the most vulnerable people in society. So almost depending on uh, what your philosophy towards um, pandemic control is, you might point at Sweden and say, look, you know, they took the right approach. Or you might say, look, this shows exactly why we should be um, bringing in place more restric- restrictive measures. I think the problem is, is that it's not quite as simple as that and actually when you start to dig into the data around Sweden you begin to realise that it doesn't really um, separate so neatly into a they locked down or they didn't lock down or they were successful or they weren't successful approach so what we've tried to do is is to dig a little bit deeper into what really went on to find out what lessons we can learn from Sweden. So what exactly did Sweden do or indeed not do differently to other European countries? Yeah, I think this is a really, really key point because 
if you're talking about Sweden and what it did differently and whether it was a success or whether it was a failure, we need to figure out by actually working out what it did. I think a lot of people say Sweden didn't lock down, nothing changed, and look, they did fine. And really, that's not exactly true. So here's, here's what they did do. So while most other countries in Europe were enforcing lockdowns in the spring, on the whole, Sweden remained largely open. So bars, shops, restaurants and other public spaces uh, stayed open while children up to the age of 16 continued to attend school. There's a couple of other notable things. Swedish authorities didn't enforce quarantine for infected households, so only people who were symptomatic had to isolate. And they also actively discouraged in response to these restrictions. And actually that's quite notable because the uh, outbreak was mainly concentrated in, in Stockholm. So it's, it's quite likely that perhaps there was you know, greater compliance in certain areas than other areas. But Sweden was also slightly unusual in, in having a pretty concentrated outbreak in, in one city. Yeah, OK, that makes sense in terms of like it was doing things differently to some other countries, maybe not sort of like the great uh, sort of chasm of difference uh, that some people expect compared to uh, to other nations. But what what do we know about the results so far? Because as you alluded to earlier, Matt, we're sort of in a second phase of the pandemic now. And also there's a lot more sort of real world data uh, and less sort of less reliance on modelling uh, of situations. So what do we know about Sweden now? Yeah, so as of October 21st, Sweden stood 15th in the global rankings of COVID-19 deaths per capita and fifth in Europe. So it's only below Belgium, Italy, Spain and the UK. So I think it's fair to say that's not really a list that you want to be near the top of. That's in pretty raw terms. That's not Sweden is even more pronounced. So 89% of Sweden's COVID-19 deaths um, have been in people over aged over 69. And during the first wave, uh, the virus was you know, particularly uh, bad in nursing homes where a thousand people died in just a, a matter of a week. So I think in really, really basic terms, it's pretty fair to say that up until now, at least, the country has not performed very well at all when it comes to that raw statistic of deaths. But we'll, we might mention economics a little bit later, because that's obviously that comes into play as well. It's funny that you mentioned nursing homes, because obviously that was a huge problem in the UK. And part of it was that the health system was completely overrun uh, with, with patients needing care. And so the government decided to approve people being pushed into care homes. And that's where they died. So we saw a lot of chaos over there. But but what was if, if Sweden didn't have the same situation of, of sort of pressure to care and, and all the lockdown measures and all that kind of stuff? What what exactly happened to make them perform so badly with deaths why why did they perform so badly yeah that that's the key question really and having you know, household isolation and things like that um, to be protecting people in these particularly vulnerable um, areas so inside uh, Sweden there's a 200 person strong scientific collective called the science forum for COVID-19 who've been very critical of the government's response and Although the conversation outside of Sweden is very much like, um, oh, should they have gone into lockdown? Shouldn't they have gone in lo- into lockdown? Really, a lot of the criticism within the country is actually because they feel there's been gross negligence when it comes to protecting the vulnerable and an evasion of strategies that might have proved effective um, you know, in terms of protecting those people who were most at risk. So actually, when you talk to people within the country broadly the 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 country strategy is quite a lot of popular support but actually where people do have criticisms it's because they've failed people in care homes they've failed elderly people and it's actually quite a specific failure that sweden got wrong in this circumstance it's a real tragedy all those deaths uh, particularly among the elderly population in sweden there now a lot of the kind of argument for a swedish approach has centered on this idea that you know, we need to keep the economy going, especially if the pandemic is going to rumble on for months and years to come. What do we know now about data in that respect? Did Sweden manage to kind of avoid some of the harsher negative economic impact? Yeah, on that front, it does appear so. So between April and June, Sweden's economy shrank 8.6%, which in normal times is absolutely terrible. But in COVID-19 times, not that bad. In contrast, the UK's economy shrank 20.4% during the same period. And that's probably because you know, businesses largely stayed open, hospitality stayed open, or there's definitely a lot of reduced footfall. Um, on the whole, uh, it was a much more kind of, you know, 
open and economically active country. But now there are some worrying indicators that things are starting to get worse again. So in this second wave between October the 6th and October the 19th, Sweden reported nearly 9,000 new COVID-19 infections. And what's particularly worried, worrying is these uh, spikes happening in cities like Uppsala, who had, they had previously avoided the worst of the virus. And now we're getting to this point, there are signs that Sweden might be altering its approach to more closely resemble those of other European nations. So on, uh, in October, October the 13th, the health ministry announced new recommendations that would allow local authorities to instruct citizens to avoid public transport, stop visiting care home residents, stop gathering in indoor environments uh, like shops and gyms, and to avoid physical contact with those outside those households. And if those restrictions sound quite familiar, that's because they're very, very similar to what's been in place in local lockdowns uh, all across Europe, and indeed in the national lockdowns early on in the um, early on in the epidemic so I think that that adds another complication you know when we actually come to judge how countries do this second wave is going to become very very important and we'll have to say well actually there's lots of things that Sweden started doing that very much started to resemble the policies of other places so just as always there's always a, a little bit of ongoing complexity with these kind of stories. So it looks like Sweden's looking at other countries as much as we are looking at them what what lessons do you think we can learn from this situation aside from perhaps, you know, put in place measures so that elderly people and overweight people don't become immediate victims of a pandemic and prepare a little bit better? Yeah, I think that's a really, really clear one. I think that also there's probably a lesson in terms of how we think about countries and how we look at how other countries are doing. You know, as we've seen, Sweden has become the darling or the enemy, depending on who you are, of you know, different sides in this in in you know this debate over coronavirus strategy or coronavirus response. And I think what's helpful is to say, okay, well, what does Sweden do right? What does it do wrong? What did it do differently? What effect did it have? And only when you start to analyse those different things can you start to see really how well a country has performed. It's also really worthwhile that, to compare countries to you know, other, similar, you know, other similar places. And it's really worth noting that actually Sweden is not the only place in the world that didn't have a lockdown. So Taiwan um, didn't have a lockdown at all through the, through the whole period, although it, it practiced for lockdowns. But it has super effective contact tracing, um, you know, well-enforced quarantine. It has lots of lots of data sharing. And it has had just seven deaths. And that's with a population of 24 million. Also, if you look at a country like Germany, now Germany did have a lockdown, it had a relatively short lockdown early on, but it has also been um, more relaxed you know, in the ongoing period, and that has a much, much lower death rate than Sweden. So I think it's really, really difficult to look at this and draw any simplistic narratives, apart from what you said, Natasha, which is actually, you know, this, this huge failure, really, to affect, um, to protect people that are most vulnerable. And I think, if anything... Uh, five years from now, that might be what people in Sweden remember, actually, that these people were most at risk from COVID-19 and these were the people that were most let down. And of course, that's the same story we heard from in the UK. It's just that the UK also had lots of other problems alongside that. So I do think there's, kind of, you know, there's lots of lessons we, we kind of get, get from this, but it's definitely not a, um, a clear success story by, by any means. Thanks a lot, Matt Reynolds, for talking us through that. Definitely many factors in play there and something we'll continue to be looking at as the story moves on and on. Now, Natasha, you've got a story for us a bit linked to the economic impact of coronavirus, negative interest rates. I think you're going to have to start from the foundations <laughs> here and explain to us what that is. Yeah, so I'll try to make it as interesting as possible as advertised um, on our header. So uh, basically, this year is not a great year, but um, as if it couldn't get any worse, we may soon have to pay for the privilege of having money in our bank accounts. So the economic slowdown caused by the pandemic this year has prompted the Bank of England to consider, for the first time in its history, whether to set the base rate, which is the rate at which banks can borrow money, below zero. So negative interest rates could cause banks to stop paying money out to savers and charge people to hold money with them instead. So this basically means that you pay interest on the money that you have in your bank accounts and savings 
savings every month rather than earning any interest. So it's sort of the opposite of what you'd expect when you open an account. These types of charges, by the way, are relatively commonplace for current accounts in Europe, but would be a huge change in mentality for British banking customers and banks themselves. So for those of you who've never come across this concept before, you have to think about it like a waterfall. So central banks impose these kinds of drastic measures of negative interest rates when they fear that their national economies are in peril. Basically, they're going into a spiral situation where there's no spending and therefore prices will drop, there's no profits and there's no growth. So by putting in things like negative interest rates, the cash deposited at a bank yields a storage charge rather than the opportunity to earn interest income. So it means that they incentivize loaning and spending rather than saving and hoarding. So basically, it's a way to prompt banks to say, we want you to use this money. We don't want you keeping it here. You can't save interest. It's not going to happen. And so they prompt banks to then say to customers, we don't like you spending. If you want to carry on spending, you have to pay for the privilege. So it's a sort of knock-on effect that happens. I hope that kind of makes sense. It's a very complex, kind of very dry issue, but I promise it does get more exciting. Well, I think it sounds terrifying because as, as far, if I'm understanding, if it's costing me money to, to save the paltry amount of cash that I already have, that, that just sounds bad. I don't, I don't like this idea at all. But I guess it leads on to another question. What impact is that going to have on you know, banks? Presumably that's going to be a big problem if it's costing them money to store their money as well. And I'm guessing, given that we are wire.co.uk and we're going to have you know we've got thoughts about neobanks and competitors that these banks are already struggling to be competitive with high street banks are they going to be hit harder than most yeah, absolutely spot on. So as as we've all been uh, in lockdown and we've all been saving and bit, feeling a bit, you know, sort of um, quite happy about the fact that we haven't been using all our money on things like coffees and transport, all of that money's been accumulating and um, it actually hasn't been a good thing for neobanks at least. So if you're interested in the world of fintech like I am, um, this is this is huge drama. It, it could basically throw a massive spanner in the works for the future of retail banking and neobanks. So the threat of negative interest is looming large for all these banks that are in the early stage of building lending businesses, which is the bog standard way of making money as a bank. So the, the way it happened since about 2012, 2013, all these banks sort of sprouted up and they offered app-based banking, low-cost products, bells, whistles. So they've built huge empires on very low-margin retail customers. So any changes to their model, especially those that introduce higher costs, have the potential to threaten their very existence. You're not going, going to want to, if you have to compare between banks, pay more um, to keep your, your money in, in certain areas rather than you know, hide it under your mattress like people used to do back in the day and the thing is the pandemic you're right Matt has been really, really awful for quite a few of the neobanks so lockdowns in the UK and abroad curtail both traveling and spending which are two key revenue streams for them so both Monzo and Revolut which are two of the main neobanks in the UK were forced into cutting hundreds of staff respectively and the basically looking at their their um, valuations being slashed so Monzo saw its own slashed in a 60 million fundraising that closed in June. So if this base turns if this base rate turns negative, both neobanks and normal banks will suddenly have to start paying interest to hold money with central bank. This is a much more worrying scenario for neobanks because they've not yet built a base large enough to offset the cost of what they'll have to pay in negative rates. So basically, they don't have thousands and thousands of customers that have been with them for many, many years that they can kind of draw on and spread the pain. They have just a few thousands or millions of customers that they've built off the back of a few years of growth that will suddenly find themselves from having loads of perks and loads of nice things given to them. It's being told, can you pay a bit of a fee for not really a great reason? You're not going to get anything. It's just however much you save, you're going to have to pay a fee for it. So basically, this, this is a really, really worrying scenario for these startups because they are at the moment loss making they haven't really worked out any way of generating revenue the pandemic's been really bad they don't necessarily have a way forward um we spoke to Declan Ferguson who's a Starling Bank's chief strategy officer and he said that negative interest rates biggest impact will be on neobanks that don't have an asset strategy and are relying on central bank rates so a lot of these businesses have basically relied on the fact that the central bank aka the bank of england is not going to change its rates and it'll be absolutely fine to carry on lending carry on saving it will all be you know hunky dory 
now that the situation has changed, they don't necessarily have a plan B in place. So any any of these changes is going to be really, really bad. And it might prove some of the critics of neobanks right. So for a long time, people have claimed that the very slim margins of retail banking, so lending to the general public rather than to businesses, is a massive zero-sum game. And that these banks will never be able to make money because it's just not a profitable model. So how are these neobanks, you know, like Monzo and Revolut responding? Are they doing anything to try and mitigate this risk? What, What are they doing? Well, I think it's important to take a look at the state of play. So according to its latest annual results, Monzo's deposits grew basically £930.7 million to nearly £1.4 billion in the 12 months to February 2020. So we're looking at a huge amount of savings that are just sort of staying in Monzo accounts. In the same period, however, as gross lending grew from £19.2 million to £143.9 million, volumes that are nowhere near sufficient to cover the company's costs. So basically, it's not lending hardly any money compared to the amount that people are saving. So losses in 2020 doubled to £113.8 million, and the bank has since scrambled to set up new ways of making money. While this whole situation was happening um, and the negative interest rates came on the news, the first thing that Monzo came up with, and this is not a criticism, it's probably bad timing, but they released something called Monzo Premium, which costs £180 a year and comes with travel and phone insurance, £600 of fee-free withdrawals abroad every month and a steel card, which doesn't necessarily work when you are facing a second lockdown, not going to go anywhere, and all you really want to do is not pay fees on your savings. So it doesn't really respond to any of the big problems that a lot of its customers will be facing at the moment and it's yet to be seen whether anyone's going to you know be lured by the steel card i've seen some people on twitter being really excited about it and people do like steel things but um it's not exactly an answer to what's going on and then you've got on the other side revolut which i think is a huge uh, really interesting example of just how widespread the term neobank really is because it's not really technically a bank at all it doesn't have uh, a license to operate as a bank in the uk it might be the largest of the lot buying user numbers but it can't actually lend any money so it's, it's currently only able to offer loan products in lithuania where it launched a fully licensed banking product in may so we spoke to Revolut for the piece uh, that we've got on wired.co.uk and Ashitosh Bat, who's the head of credit for Revolut, thinks that negative rates will in fact improve the startup's ability to compete with its rivals because since it's not a bank, it doesn't have to worry about lending and it doesn't necessarily have to worry about the fees that would be incurred by lending and keeping money with central bank because it technically doesn't. The problem is, is that Revolut is regulated as an e-money institution, which means that customers are almost like renting space. I don't know how to explain it otherwise, but it's, it's like you're renting a space in another bank's coffers. So they're doing it through Barclays and Lloyd. So you don't technically have an account with them, but you have an account with Revolut. But you don't technically have an account with Revolut because Revolut isn't a bank. Anyway, it's very confusing. But basically, if Barclays and Lloyd suddenly find themselves having to pay interest rates, you will too, even though you're a Revolut customer and have nothing really to do with either bank. So it's a huge mess, basically. Yeah, and that's that's a lot of focus there on sort of like individuals and people that are uh, at the end of the chain. But some of these neobanks also do lend to businesses and have business accounts as well. Does Will that same sort of impact happen for them? Yeah, so a lot of, again, the same critics who are saying that retail banking has no future, um, obviously will be looking towards business banks to see how they all react to this. It's, it's not exactly plain sailing either. The crisis has not been kind to any um, anyone in the fintech sector, really. Um, but it is a problem that is far easier to manage. So uh, we spoke to Edward Twiddy, who's the chief customer officer at um, Atom Bank, which is a neobank, which was backed by American rapper Will I Am. just goes to show how how widespread investment can be. Uh, so it, they basically said that the that Atom Bank is, is reviewing its business lending products, which are linked to a base rate tracker. So again, it's all about looking under the under the hood of some of these products and saying, right, how much are they linked to central banks? terms and how much are they set by the actual banks themselves so basically they're just doing a bit of a review to see how this is going to impact 
businesses. So Starling Bank has been lending out cash at massively breakneck speed over the past 12 months. It was one of the government approved um, lenders for the 100% taxpayer guaranteed bounce back loans, which are designed to shield micro businesses from the impact of the pandemic. So if we look at, at Starling as an example, it had a loan book of roughly £1.3 billion pounds as of 30th of September, which compares to a total deposit rate of £3.7 billion pounds and £1.7 million customers. So huge kind of potential for um, this to impact its customer base. Again, not really clear on how much this is going to affect them because it's not the same for a business as it is for an individual. Oak North, another um, very um, interesting startup bank that was supported by SoftBank is again saying that it's amassed around £3.5 billion pounds since 2015. And it's built a very profitable business, doling secured loans to mid-sized companies. So we've got about £3.5 billion pounds in loan books since 2015. And the fact remains, basically, that neobanks would be rather sitting on a lucrative loan book right now than not. So if, if you are sort of part of a business bank, you might be able to have a bit of a respite and be not caught up by the same things, but it's likely that you will. I mean, it, it's, it's all about the size of the coffers that you have. So for retail banking, you don't necessarily have, again, the amount to cover it all. With business banking, just because of the sheer amount of money that they're playing with, they might be able to cover it a bit better. Does that make sense? I don't even know anymore. (laughs) It does. Thanks for imparting some of your fintech and banking knowledge, Natasha. Much appreciated. So just to be clear, I mean, this could still not happen, right? We haven't yet got to that place of negative interest. Yeah, that's right. So on October the 12th, Bank of England and the Prudential Regulation Authority wrote to British banks, basically asking them for information on their operational readiness for negative interest rates. That the, the, the idea here is to try to stimulate the economy, not to cripple the entire sector. So they were particularly keen to get a sense of the technological problems negative rates would pose, because as we know, banks have a huge amount of paperwork and it's a huge thing to unravel suddenly having to go from paying people interest to charging people interest and how much and how would you do it and who do you charge and how much do you charge for? All that kind of stuff would take a load of time and potentially a massive amount of effort. So there is a definite chance that nothing will happen and that they'll change their minds. And as you know, with more modern systems, neobanks would be in a better position than traditional banks to sort this out. So there is a slight, tiny uh, silver lining here, I suppose. So from a technological standpoint, it should be more straightforward for neobanks to track people from 2013, 2015 and businesses from that same date than it is for banks that have, you know, to go back 50 years, generations of different people. What do you even do? So it's, it's for traditional banks, it's bad news too. I know we focus a lot on neobanks and we like to look at them because it, there's a huge risk element because they're not yet profitable and any kind of bad thing could make them basically jump over the edge and that would be the end of it. But traditional banks will also have a big, big issue on their hands if negative interest rates do happen. So some commentators have um, sort of likened it to the Y2K bug, uh, which some people here probably too young to even remember happening but it's <laughs> you're looking at me um they're just like but do you remember the y2k bug i remember the y2k bug and i was like 11 I, I would have been 10 at the time so yes well there we go it's matt reynolds then he's the youngest of us but yeah for, for those of you who are too young to remember this is the millennium bug that was supposedly going to end the world and wipe up all computers and that was going to be the end of it and then everyone got really excited and then the year 2000 happened and everyone was like five four three two one and then literally nothing happened and it was all a massive hoax and it didn't really occur but but they're actually saying that obviously this is has the potential to cause as much havoc as that did when banks were scrambling to back up all their information and try to figure out what to do about it and spending a lot of money and effort um, in something that might end up being a load of hot air. Well, we look forward to hearing more about that um, when we know whether or not it's happening and what 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 comes to pass, Natasha. So be prepared. <laughs> and as always, to our listeners, if you'd like to feedback on any of our stories on this week's podcast, or just check in and let us know how you're doing. The uh, the email is the same as usual, podcast at wired.co.uk. We love to hear from you. 
Our last story this week, and Matt Burgess, you've been reporting a a pretty grim story, really, in the security sector on Telegram, the kind of secretive messaging app. Yeah, this one is, um, yeah, was not particularly enjoyable in any way to report and quite horrible, really, but uh, something that we think is worth bringing on the podcast and interesting to talk about to just to show how technology is changing and how it reflects what people and how people use it so this week it was revealed that there was a bot on telegram which is as you mentioned vicky messaging app that um the bot uses deep fake technology to remove the clothes of women from photos um so just as a quick recap when we're talking about the idea of deep fakes this is something that emerged in uh the late 2017 and it's essentially a way of using AI through uh, generative networks to replace people's faces or in this case body parts with either synthetic versions or um, taking their face and placing it on another um, uh, another piece of footage or image that is already existing. So at the simplest it's essentially a photo version of photoshopping but uh this really on steroids and powered by ai and a lot more um creative and doesn't necessarily need human uh involvement to create so the bot on telegram is surrounded by a network of channels that cross promote it and link to other services uh, and these channels have tens of thousands of members um and the bot itself has been used to create um more than a hundred thousand non-consensual images of women over the last 15 months um and this is a case of uh the figure may actually be much higher because these were the numbers just shared publicly um, and some of the images also appeared to be of children and people of under 18 um so every day the bot has been sending out a gallery of new images to uh, one of the associated telegram channels which has got uh 25,000 subscribers and the sets of images were viewed often sort of three, five, seven thousand times uh, by people that were subscribing to this. Um, And mostly the sort of images that were being created in this uh, were for, for, and uh, sorry of and by people in uh around russia and sort of local areas to there so people that sort of self-responded to a poll on the bot said they were from russia ukraine belarus kazakhstan and and former areas of the ussr um other regions in the world didn't use this bot as much um but essentially um one of the troubling aspects of this as well as the pure image creation is um that the people that were using it said that they were using it to undress uh in inverted commas um people that they knew already so people that were in their lives whether it's fam uh, whether it's friends whether it was people from social media etc um so really this is sort of a case of a use troubling use case of technology to uh, create abusive images so i think listeners might be most familiar with deep fake technology from those videos you might have seen president obama um, you know someone putting different words in his mouth and it looks like he was saying something that he never said before i think that those kind of videos always imply this is scary and it's it's dangerous but it probably requires a lot, lot of knowledge and and a lot of uh, skill to to you know make these videos but these images that you're talking about these deep fake images are these something that anyone could do or, or, or are we talking about people that uh, you know i don't know had specialist software or had had you know a certain set of skills that meant they could do this just just how exactly was this being done yeah so in in short it didn't require any sort of specialist knowledge from sort of your general user which is one of the things that sort of really makes this stand out because as you say matt in previous cases of deep fakes that we've seen either that have been created for uh to showcase the technology or in other cases uh for sort of abusive purposes those have been sort of quite specialized in terms of how you would have to create them um so with this bot it was essentially as simple as uploading a photo to a messaging service in this case telegram uh but no different really in terms of the user process as me taking an image uh, and sending it to you via whatsapp or messenger or something like that the difference here is that uh this image was being sent to a bot which is connected to uh external servers and essentially the ai processing happened sort of remotely from this but for a user perspective and as we know sort of uh thousands of people have done this uh, all you'd have to do is upload a photograph um so the ai systems behind that um 
awesome thing that was created in sort of 2019 so the the bot on telegram was uh, believed to be powered by a version of some software which was called deep nude uh which was first reported on by vice in june 2019 um and that was a very much the same sort of case where um this person created an app that created that one uh, and that could be downloaded for about 50 dollars um but in that case once this person created that software uh, in 2019 they realized the damage that it could do and after sort of like ninety-five thousand downloads in a few days they killed that or that piece of software called deep nude altogether um however in the time when it was uh when it was out there the code was uh quickly sort of backed up and copied it was made open source um and this bot on telegram is basically believed to be using a version of that that's been mon- monitored or edited over the last year or so uh to work for this for this process um and the way that the sort of like the the real technology behind it works is that in the original deep nude software it essentially uses deep learning and uh generative adversarial networks called gans most commonly uh, to generate what it thinks victims bodies look like in this cases so the ai is trained on sets of images of uh clothed and naked women and then is able to essentially uh use what it has learned to create new examples based on the images that are submitted to it um and it's worth pointing out as well um all this only worked on uh on female bodies uh this is not a case of this technology has been uh works across genders it is something that has been used exclusively and explicitly to target women uh and to and to really cause damage to damage to them and their lives um, and it really marks a step forward in the ease of the use of defect technology because as you say anybody could upload an image and see this processed right so we've got channels with thousands of people who are regularly downloading images of women of technology that has been available for some time now i mean if it if this tech was around before surely telegram has done something about it or is doing something about it to stop this from happening it seems like a very simple thing to do you you would think so um but myself and other journalists who covered this story asked telegram um what it's going to do about this what it's uh what's its response are what its policies are uh beyond some very vague policies that are sort of outlined on its website uh, and the company just didn't respond at all um the company that was behind this research uh called sensity which is a deep fake detection service and is uh trying to sort of highlight instances of deep fakes being abused across the internet uh so we can better protect ourselves in the future they reported these channels to telegram uh, at the start of this year really it was before it was sort of january time february time when they contacted uh telegram in the first place and telegram never applied uh at all to them either um and sort of this has been reported to law enforcement bodies now which are taking a look at these instances we don't know what will happen in that case um but yeah telegram didn't do anything around this at all when it was uh when it was highlighted to it um and sort of just before um people published stories around this uh the actual the creator uh who had obviously been questioned by myself and other journalists out there uh they removed a lot of the galleries of previous images that have been created by this uh which is one tiny positive thing to come out of this i think that those uh large galleries of thousands of images of people are no longer accessible uh but unfortunately the bot still exists and uh, i mean hopefully it will get taken down or stop working over the coming days etc um but also there's the issue that the deep nude code which was originally uh uh, created as I say in 2019 uh that's the backups that i talked about uh, a little bit earlier they're also available on the microsoft owned uh coding platform github uh there's multiple versions of the raw code on there um that people are developing now have been actively developing for for a little while um and so we asked github about this as well and originally when the first uh first version of this came out in 2019 that wasn't on telegram um github took some of that code down but when we asked them this time all the code is still up there they said that they don't actively police um and monitor what is being uploaded unless there are complaints about it because it's they call it user-generated content and they don't um monitor that proactively but we'll look into into it when there's complaints made about it um so at this stage of like when we're talking now they seemingly haven't done anything about it uh but may do so based on complaints or stuff going forward uh but it seems to be a little bit of uh hand washing saying not this isn't necessarily our problem in that in that particular case 
And as you say, it seems that this just kind of illustrates how we've failed to keep up with the risks posed by deepfake technology since it was first kind of revealed in in 2017. Um, and, and, you know, when when you hear about deepfake technology, it's often in that context of this kind of hypothetical political scenario of, um, you know, deepfakes being used to trick people in elections or something like that, or, or to control the political narrative by uh, fooling people into believing something that isn't true. But repeatedly, we see that in real life, the way this technology is used is against women and it's usually used to create these kind of pornographic images of women naked images of women um and it's that's sort of the very very much the the real life use that we've seen of deep fakes so far is there any recourse like what what can we do about this yeah it's it's been um yeah, it's it's quite depressing to think about it in these terms and just like how it is being abu- uh, used to abuse women and sort of uh, in some of this case, it was sort of particularly highlighted that although we haven't seen any examples of this happening, um, these images could easily be used to blackmail people. The technologies got easier and cheaper uh, for people to use and produce. And in this case, it was free um, and sort of the we've just failed to keep up in terms of a legal sense of this and really trying to uh, tackle this in a proper way. And as you, as you pointed out there, Vicky, quite often this is, uh, this is pointed to a, oh, this could be a, a democratic problem for politics, when actually, actually it's already having a, an impact on uh, sort of the democracy that we've created already because it is ha- harming half of the potential population in society. So it is a case of, yeah, the, the recourse is very limited for this. So it will sort of depend on um, sort of different jurisdictions where you're in. But sort of for, from a UK perspective, there are sort of like multiple different ways that you could pursue something like this legally. So there is stuff around copyright of, of images that you might own. There is stuff around defamation, sort of uh, human rights uh, act, rights to privacy uh, and right to a private life and things like that could also be pursued. But there's no explicit laws around uh, saying that this this is how this content can be removed if it is of you or something like that and really sort of people in this space in the legal space say the existing laws yeah they might be okay but they're not easily accessible for anybody to to sort of go down there's not a lot of precedent in this place so it would be more it would be better to have uh, even though some of the legal mechanisms in place already may work it would be better to have something more explicit and there's a lot of work a lot of campaigning going around on to change some of the laws on this stuff um, and I think it's it's worth highlighting that unless anything like that changes as this technology does become even easier to use in the future uh, more people are going to suffer the effects of it this is hugely damaging um, and can as some of the legal experts we were speaking to were saying well this will very quickly have a chilling effect on people's uh, women's behavior in this in this world so people will uh, reconsider what they can and can't post online what they should be doing uh and really have a chilling effect on sort of behaviors so this is something that we really should have got a grip on a couple of years ago and to see it in this state where it's being used in the wild um on a huge scale and not a lot being done about it is to be honest quite quite horrifying thank you matt burgess as always feedback on this episode please send to podcast at wired .co.uk and we'll end on a few pieces of feedback from previous episodes. Uh, Afra writes in about printers. Uh, a few weeks back we spoke about the rise in home printing following lockdown and people all going out to buy home printers. Afra says we've had a subscription ink based printer since around 2013 or 2014 and honestly it's quite revolutionary. I'm so surprised this hasn't caught on more. Afra pays about two to four pounds a month, gets ink delivered when it runs out and can upgrade or downgrade if they want more pages for the month. So they pay about 40 pounds a year for printer use, including the ink, without the hassle of having to order that ink. Afra says they just wanted to share their experience and shock and and their shock that everyone doesn't subscribe to ink services already. Afra, maybe you're ahead of the curve. I don't know. Yeah, that is definitely one that is uh, maybe, I don't know, do, do any of you subscribe to Printer Inc? Don't have a printer. <laughs> She's already ahead. <laughs> I, I also don't ahead. have a printer. <laughs> Avery, you're, you're ahead of all of us. Uh, <laughs> we've got some feedback from Chris, Matt. 
Yeah, Chris writes in to say it's about the story that we talked about, I think, last week around the sort of the collapse of the cinema industry during the pandemic. And Chris says that they have worked in the cinema industry in 20 years, uh, 10 years in cinemas and 10 years in film distribution. Uh, and was glad to hear us point out the release of Unhinged, uh, but also wanted to mention that other small and mid-sized distributors are still releasing films as well. Uh, it's the problem. They say the problem is that major distributors uh, don't want to risk uh, their big sort of hero releases of films. Uh, their suggestion would be that major distributors each commit to releasing one of their delayed features over the next three months. Uh, and they can agree to re- a release schedule that means they don't compete with each other and then change the release dates if there is a full lockdown. Uh, and Chris goes on to say that uh, they it means they'll be sacrificing some of their box office returns, but uh, will uh, possibly be take away some of the risk and some of the competition around this uh, and essentially points out that the big uh, distributors and companies in this space um, need to take some uh, take some care of the rest of the industry which uh, has a big base excellent and some feedback from liz as well yeah, so Liz has is, is decided to pick on me, as many others have, feel personally victimised by Liz. She says she liked the 27th of, ep- uh, of September episode, so please catch it and give more feedback if you haven't yet listened. Uh, she said that, the, that she'd like to close in on my use of the word staycation. She says, come on, Natasha, you've got to take some responsibility here. Language only evolves because of the, because of the way people use it. And you're influencing your listeners by using this word to mean holiday in your own country. I don't think I'd heard this disturbing use, she says, until it showed up on the wide podcast. I am sorry. I had no idea that I was this influential, but I now have realised the error of my ways and I will embark upon a solo one woman mission to re-establish staycation as you stay in your own home, not going anywhere and not going somewhere within your own country because I feel deep within the core of my being that Liz is right I was right and I was led astray not by Jane's as it is has suggested um, but in fact by the use of it on places like the BBC the Guardian the Telegraph the Times um, and other such national and international news channels Um, but I will now endeavour to make sure that staycation is where it's supposed to be at home um thank you liz for setting me right i think it took a couple times from a couple of listeners but i've now seen the error of my ways (laughs) so thank you it feels like this is going to be one of those arguments that keeps on rolling what is the true (laughs) definition of staycation uh let's wait and see i wonder how it it may, may depend on our holiday habits next year you know if we're all holidaying in our own countries again we could see uh, this definition continue to evolve, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Thanks for everyone for joining us this week. We'll be back again next week at the same time. In the meantime, look after yourselves. Bye. 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 Bye.